Clubhouse. I'm Joey Hartstone, and you're listening to Pod Clubhouse. Joining us on the special episode of Tales from Yaya's, we're very excited to welcome your honors showrunner, executive producer, and writer of the season two finale, Joey Hearthstone. Joey, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. You know, as people may or may not know, you previously wrote part seven of your honor back in season one, so long ago, it seems like. But starting with season two, you took over as the brand new showrunner. Tell us a little bit about your journey to that role and joining the show as the man in charge. Season one started well before the pandemic, and it was uh, it was a great room. I think it was seven writers, and then Peter Moffat, who was the uh, the creator, and then we reconvened for a second season a couple of years later. And Peter is British, and his work was really taking him away from his family a bit too much, and so he decided he didn't want to do the second season, and um, they gave me the job. Now, was there ever any hesitation for taking over for Peter, though? Because not only was he the showrunner, but he is the one who adapted the series from the Israeli series Kavoto, and, and he's really kind of the one credited with bringing it to the screen. Was there any kind of big shoes to fill or any hesitation on your part, or you jumped at the chance? Uh, yeah, I was definitely worried. Season one was such a success, and people really enjoyed the show. I loved it. And so, yeah, I immediately thought, well, this will definitely suffer by comparison, and I braced myself for inedible uh, reviews of nowhere near as good as season one. But Peter had created such a good show with with great characters and, and left enough story for us to really, I think, come up with some stuff that we could be proud of. You were in the writer's room, so you had been following along, obviously, with the season. Did you have to do any kind of particular ramp up getting ready for season two, especially given the amount of time because of the pandemic in between the seasons and shooting? Yeah, well, actually, Peter and Brian did did some work together um, just in trying to come up with some general ideas, especially for the Michael character of what season two could be before they kind of all agreed to move forward. And then by the time I became showrunner, we, we had we had some things already in the works. And uh, it was it, yeah, it was the train had left the station. As you guys were kind of looking at how season one ended and you're sitting there saying, okay, so we're going to start this season two. We had some pretty big obstacles that you had to kind of overcome and decide like, how, how are we going to handle this? Things like Fia's pregnancy and stuff like that. Things that weren't on screen in season one that you had to start with in season two. How did you guys handle some of those things and what were some of those examples? Yeah, well, sort of the first thing you do, and we ended up doing this for several months, but the first thing you do in a writer's room when a new season starts is you just, we call it blue skying, but you just kind of talk about the big picture stuff. The way I like to do it is also talk a lot about where you want to end up so that you don't get to the last couple episodes and think like, oh God, how are we going to end this story? Right. I mean, I think we started basically with like, okay, what is what do we love and what does everyone love from season one? And top of the list, obviously, Michael, um, but everyone really cares about Eugene. And so we had a lot of conversations about what do we want to see happen to this kid? There was unanimity about wanting something positive for him at the end. And we knew we'd have to put him through some difficult more difficult times than he'd already been through in order to get there. But so, yeah, so we did that. And then we, we talked about, you know, the Baxters and their relationships with one another, who is Carlo and then how to see, how to see a bit more of everybody. Like we wanted to see different sides of big Mo and little Mo and, and how to go about kind of expanding these great characters that we already had. 
So what viewers saw in part 20, was that how it was always going to play out with, or did it evolve? Did you guys change things as you went? Or was it definitely like, no, we know exactly where each person is going to end? We didn't know exactly, but it was, most of it had been planned pretty well in advance. Um, Brian was very, very clear that he wanted his character to find a little bit of hope, but also to end the season essentially exactly where he began, but changed. So physically where he began in prison. And then for the rest of the characters, it sort of just, when it came to the ending, we would just have these conversations. And when a great idea popped up, we would just, you know, put a pin in it and save it. Um, so like, I remember one of our writers, Danny Viteri, who wrote the second episode, she mentioned somewhere kind of midway through the room, she said, what if Fia gives the baby away? And it just kind of, you could hear a pin drop and we just thought like, that's a really powerful and great idea. And it also makes sense for someone who can't seem to escape her criminal and evil family. So things like that, just sort of along the way, um, when we were talking about Eugene, I had asked the writer's room, I said, you know, there seems to be a rule in this show that you can't have everything you want, that you, if you get what you want at the end, you had to make a sacrifice along the way. And I said, what does Eugene have left to sacrifice at this point? If we know we're going to give him some semblance of hope at the end. And our writer, Nick Barrett said his name. And that not only gave us the story idea for him to have to take a deal where he had to give up his identity, but also it really kind of hammered home this theme of names that you see throughout the season, like, you know, Rocco Adam Baxter and what that means, or the Baxter district, everybody's name ended up having kind of more importance than, than I think we originally conceived of because of that moment. We're definitely going to dig into the finale and, and where everyone ended up, because I think hearing from you is even better than hearing from us who spent, I mean, Caroline and I spent a lot of time thinking about these episodes <laughs> and talking about them, but obviously you are the official source, so people definitely want to hear from you on specific characters and where they wound up. Mike, I have to tell you this, though. Even just hearing Joey say things like Big Mo, Little Mo, Fia, I'm like, he knows them. He knows the people <laughs> we know. Like, it seems so funny because it's so outside of us. And so to actually get to talk to you is like, you are steeped in this in the same way that I'm like, oh, he knows our friends, Michael. Man, if he had just it's called funny. Elizabeth Senator Grandma, I mean. Oh, that's a, that would be it. <laughs> I, I intend to call her that, but no, that's the excitement <laughs> for me. Like, uh, listening to your podcast, that, that does it for me too, because not since being in the writer's room do i hear people who who know these stories and these characters so well and so the only the biggest difference is that you guys are sort of guessing what the end is and in the writer's room we're guessing but we also have to then decide uh, but it's really fascinating to hear people who consume the show so carefully uh make these predictions and examine the choices Love oh, we, we appreciate you listening. <laughs> right? Yeah. So we have to ask this now because it's going to be the biggest question on people's minds, season three. To, to the extent that you can say, is there a crack in the door at all that your honor may continue on for another season? Yeah, it, listen, J you had Jimmy opening his eyes in the ICU. <laughs> you knew you were opening the door for that question. Uh, it's definitely above my pay grade. You know, season one ended and we thought that was going to be it. Obviously, there was a season two. I think the hope is always that a show will be successful and well-liked by its audience so much that, that there can be a future somehow. It's not my call, but I would be happy to see it continue. I, I know Brian broke a lot of hearts last summer. I think it was on Dax's <laughs> podcast. And he said that yeah. season two was going to be the last. And that was before even shooting had begun. I think shooting began like two days later, three days later. And, and a lot of people were down about that. But watching how the season played out and watching the Baxter, especially that coup, Gina's coup at the end, 
even if the story as it is doesn't continue, like a spinoff story would be fantastic. I know people would be in, enthused about that, but I know it's not. It's above your pay grade, but <laughs> if you feel like you want to come back and break that news here on Tales from Yaya's, definitely feel free. <laughs> Be happy to. <laughs> That's awesome. So as you guys were sitting down in the writer's room, I know you must have characters that you relate to better than others. What characters did you feel like were like easiest either for you personally to write for or even as like a whole room that everybody just really had their arms around? And then who was like the toughest? Who was like the one that was like, how do we find this this character's voice? Yeah, great question. We did a sort of like a little writing assignment early on. I don't love to do writing assignments usually that have nothing to do with the scripts, but everyone took the idea was everyone could write a scene with at least like two characters. And instead of assigning it, I just said like everyone just pick whichever ever character whichever characters you want to do. And actually this may have predated me as a showrunner, so I may be taking credit for something I didn't do. But in any event, um <laughs> it was interesting to see that everyone chose different characters. And I say that to say that that every character that we have is is really someone that people care about in the writer's room. And and it varies who sort of takes ownership over which characters based on your background or how you connect to that character or whatever. So I mean for me, I I always it was really, really fun for me to write Gina. Because she's unlike me and she has no filter. She says whatever she wants and she's very ruthless and you don't have to worry about like the subtleties with a lot of what she does. I think the most interesting thing for me about writing the characters when I became showrunner was that I also got to meet the actors and got to know the actors really well. And as a writer, you don't usually have that ability when you're just on on the staff i kind of went in thinking well carlo is sort of not one-dimensional but god he's a terrible person there's not much i like about him and then i met jimmy stanton and he's a sweetheart and i had such a good time talking with him we were both new dads and we talked about our fathers and so some of that conversation actually then creeps into the show where he's searching for his father's approval and and there were ways to kind of connect with that character for me that i, I didn't know would happen so who do you think was like the toughest? Who was like, this is like the one that nobody seems to know exactly how they should sound? I don't think there was one where as a room we were stumped. I mean, there are a lot of great lines of Big Mo's that I could not write. So we have a writer named Brandy Nicole, and she did she did a lot of dialogue for Big Mo and Little Mo. But in particular, like the big lines, like I, I know you guys love the if if was a fifth, we'd all be fucking drunk. That was a Brandy <laughs> line. And, and so she came up with lots of like, yeah, just great lines like that. And, and so for me, yeah, definitely the further a, a character is from my own life experience, the harder it can be. But uh, that's why you have a writer's rooms, because, you know, someone's going to know how to connect to that character. If it was a fifth, we'd all be fucking drunk. <laughs> I literally keep it on my soundboard because it, it just it's comes so up good. all the time. It comes up all the time. I, know. <laughs> I love that so line. I, I know. I mean, just talking about lines and, and delicious dialogue and talking about Gina and her no filter. I know this this one was a favorite of Caroline's that she has said to me actually several times since, <laughs> since it aired. I'm finding your tranquility rather irritating. If I if I need to come vent and Mike's like, listen, yeah. it's all gonna work out. I was like, mm mm. I'm I'm like Gina backstering you all over the place right now. Like, no way. <laughs> totally. I see. I don't think I act like Gina very much, but I think I think like her from time to time. And so that was definitely. That I, I, it was not hard to tap into how irritating that can be. <laughs> so funny. That's so funny. 
Uh, when the show premiered back in December of 2020, can you believe that it's so long ago? Uh, no, December 2020. That's crazy. The, the tagline at the time, and it was advertised, how far would you go to save your child? That was on all the posters, was on all the, the marketing material. And now at the end of the show, we're still asking that same question. In the second to last episode, Michael talked to Jimmy about the true test of family, not being loyalty, but sacrifice, which kind of goes towards how far would you go to save your child? Can you talk to us a bit about that and writing that theme into the series and specifically into the different choices everyone makes at the end of the episode, Michael and Fia? So that came from an idea I had. I was I know you guys did a long conversation about that for the last episode. It made me think a lot. No, it was it was so it was so interesting. Uh, I love the last episode that you guys dropped. But yeah, so I was thinking, why is it that loyalty means you get to do something terrible and then I have to conform to that or I'm the disloyal one. Like, And so that was kind of what I was thinking of for that conversation was this idea of, I think, it, I mean, we're all parents. Like you would do anything for your kid. I think in a way that that's kind of an easy question, but it gets more complicated when you're weighing other aspects. Like for Michael, you know, in that same conversation, what what interested me was that idea of, of course, he would take a bullet for his son. No question. You don't even have to think about that. But would he sacrifice his way of life and his career or would he try really hard to maintain both that and his son's life at the same time? And I think in retrospect, that was what was gnawing at him was that he didn't just make the big sacrifice. He tried to have it all and he suffered the consequences. Mike, do you have any other follow-up you want to talk about failing sacrifice before we move on? Because I know it was a lengthy conversation that we had, and I definitely felt like we were struggling. I was super struggling with what is loyalty. And, you know, I have to tell you, Joey, now I'm, like, judging other people harsh about, like, <laughs> when they say, like, when I'm, like, I'm going through my Your Honor test, I'm like, so say your kid killed someone else. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah. let me give yeah. you this setup. What would you do? And they're like, oh, I turned my kid in. I'm like, oh, man, I don't think we're friends at all. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't think we could even talk anymore because I'm going to probably do some stuff that I'm going to need you to help me with. So, uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so being a new dad, though, is that is that different for you to look at it now that you're dad? It was. I mean, it feels like it took forever for season one to come out because COVID hit in the middle of filming. So that writer's room had been done for months. And it felt like almost, I think, a year passed from the time the writer's room was done till we actually saw the episodes. Um, so I wasn't a father when I was on season one. But it's sort of like it was like an intellectual exercise. I understood that you would do anything for your child. But yeah, it feels different when you're, when you're looking at that kid. And it, you, it changes you in know. an instant. It, it, it's, yeah. Uh... It's a really overnight change or an immediate change. Yeah. We want to dive into Fia and her choice and, and, and that idea of sacrifice. But let's stay with Michael for a little bit, I think. All right. Well, so when Michael like begins season two, I know he's he's really actively ready to die. That, those were some queasy scenes, Joey. I was like that beginning part, all that force feeding with the tubes and the, oh, my Lord, that was a lot. But then Olivia enters his life. Everything's changed. He seems to like be on this quest to like write these choices that he's made, get some sort of redemption. Do you feel like that's a right read for us to make on Michael's season here? And do you think he found any redemption of his honor by the end? Was going back to prison the honorable thing to do? I think he did get some redemption. I think, I don't even think he wanted it then. I mean, that was certainly Brian wanted his character to be completely having given up. And that was kind of easy to understand given what he'd been through. 
and the, the other thing that Brian wanted, which I thought was really interesting, was he just didn't want him pieced back together right away. He didn't want it to be Charlie's life is in danger. Therefore, Michael becomes the old Michael. Like he wanted it to be about a real man who had suffered one of the worst things you can and how slowly and reluctantly he would be pieced back together. You know, there were certain things he didn't want to do anymore, like lie, and he didn't want to be in charge of people's well-being. And, 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 I, and that was great because then you got to put him in situations where he had to test that. Like, could he lie? Could he not? Or, okay, you don't want to be in charge of anyone, but you don't think you have anyone close to you. Now you find out you have a grandchild and you find out you really care about that grandchild's mother. And so it was sort of fun to kind of blindside Michael at every turn and test his new resolve and see where the cracks in that were. We had a feast with that conversation uh, (laughs) of Michael and Jimmy at the Baxter District groundbreaking ceremony when yeah. uh, he's talking to Jim and he says, I just don't want to be in charge of telling, of deciding what's right or wrong anymore. And I think we all could do a little bit better of not being too worried about <laughs> other people's rights and wrongs. I know. Now yeah. I'm feeling bad that two seconds ago I just said I judge people about what they would do. <laughs> because we did have an entire conversation about how, like, as you get older, you start to be like, I don't know, man. Everyone's got their reasons. I don't even want to yeah. get into why they would do what they would do. I, I give up on trying to figure out why they do it. We do have to ask you a question specifically and because this is a set the record straight kind of question so Mm -hmm. michael walks back into that prison in the final scene is this because his work was completed for olivia and like she was done with him and was like sending him back to to jail or prison or was this his choice was this part of his redemption arc and he felt like he had to take his punishment what what should we know about this yeah, I mean, I think you guys have acknowledged that this show does a lot of stuff off screen. And and so I think you can interpret it how you want. I mean, for me, it really was that he was put away under false pretenses so that Olivia could keep his confession under wraps. And his release, all of it was still sort of that same facade. And, and now having confessed publicly on the stand, he is willingly accepting what he believes is a punishment that he deserves for the crimes that he committed. So I, I don't think it had as much to do with Olivia as it did him saying, this is what I did. I mean, he sort of does the confession to Elizabeth in the final episode and he tells her the crimes that he committed. And I think he also believes that, that going to prison is part of his redemption. So he's willingly returning. I like that. I like that a lot. It, 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 it feels like it's a nice completion to the redemption arc and, and bookends, right? We, we love bookends. Yeah. And so he starts, yeah. he starts broken in the first episode in prison. His, his chest is, is, out and he's standing upright as he walks back in at the end it's a nice arc but it's also a full circle kind of moment i think we decided he would eat his dinner when he went back in and he was no Mm, longer going to do the tube (laughs) i know that's what i'm hoping i was like please just eat your dinner and don't make anyone like hold your mouth open with a screwdriver please none of that i have a strong (laughs) constitution but that feeding tube scene really took me down a notch it It was was gross We had uh, our writer Bill Kane wrote that scene, and we he had found a uh, most deaf did a did a video during the uh, like during the Iraq War and the, the Iraq Guantanamo, and he or he wanted to show what it was like to force feed prisoners, and so he had he actually had himself being force fed, and it was pretty brutal to watch, and he was voluntarily participating, so that was kind of the inspiration for how that played out. 
We did have a question that came in from one of our listeners that I wanted to make sure we ask in this sort of section about sort of what you chose to put on screen versus off. And one of the things that they mentioned that I never really thought about was this idea that it seems like the kids were getting like the brunt of the action, I guess. You know, like we had Rocco and Adam dying. We had Eugene get hurt multiple times. We had so much going on with that as opposed to the adults, which maybe we're just more desensitized to adults getting injured so maybe it didn't stick out as much but i don't know did did you feel like you showed more kid stuff or was there any thought about you know there's sort of that rule of like we don't kill a kid on screen and stuff you know people kind of do that yeah. to stay away from that so i mean did any of that come into play when you guys were thinking about this yeah that's really interesting i don't know if that was a thought that peter moffat was having when he was kind of laying out season one i mean for me it wasn't really a conscious thought that i had but it does seem to me that for most of our characters, they've chosen a life of danger, of crime, of consequences. And I just think that the real punishments then are when their children get hurt. I mean, I can, you know, Jimmy Baxter doesn't want to die, but the difference between Jimmy dying and him losing one of his three children, it's astronomical. And so I just feel like the true consequences of doing some really terrible things to the world have to go beyond the karmic consequences have to go beyond what you have done. That makes sense, Mike. That's totally something you and I have yeah. been worrying about. <laughs> karma, as I've gotten older, karma dictates a lot of my life choices, I feel like. So. I feel or, like or I the worry karma about karma. your life. I was like, hey, do you know about karma? <laughs> I was like, you should get your doorman cupcakes for Christmas. Just do it. It's karma, man. Just do it. <laughs> like a shiny pamphlet at the door one day was Caroline. Have you accepted karma into your life? <laughs> do you know you should be nice to people? It's a good thing. Yeah. I'll give that a go. Uh, let's stay on that theme of sacrifice because Michael obviously sacrificed and and made choices and and Adam paid the price and he had to deal with that but Fia is this kind of pure or as pure as the show gets member of her family surrounded by all these bloodthirsty lunatics but at the end we see her handing over her baby to father jay i think that was very hard for everyone to watch her mm -hmm. her reaction in the car i think was everyone's reaction when she's sobbing walk us through you the, her choice there and her motivations. We have our own theories, but we'd love to hear what the official thought on I it is. Like, we have the theories, Joey, but maybe you know. <laughs> yes, but, but like, you know, we, we, we like your, we're going to give weight to your theories on why you wrote it this way. <laughs> well, again, I think we were looking at like the beginning of the stories and we were saying, you know, what does this person have to sacrifice or what kind of happiness are they entitled to or how can things just land differently? And so we knew in the final montage, we wanted a sense of fulfillment with Michael. We wanted probably our, our most optimistic hope to be for Eugene. And so with Fia, we didn't feel that she had deserved punishment, but there were still kind of those karmic prices to play from a familial standpoint. And then just in, in a larger sense, we wanted to see her, this teenage mother, actually make the adult incredible sacrifice that none of our adult characters had had, which was truly put her child in every way above her own happiness yeah i love seeing seeing lily 
performing that in the car. And I think she captures what hopefully the audience is feeling. But I think you have Michael and you have Jimmy having these conversations about what fathers would do for their children. And you have Gina on the stand saying she'd take a bullet. But then you see Fia actually say, my child's in danger and will forever be in danger. So I have to do the hardest thing for me personally to protect this child. I think we drew such a bright line when Caroline and I were both watching this. We, I think we were both stunned when she comes into her suite and her family literally forms a blockade between her and the baby. And for us, I I think it hit for both of us, her and the baby are always going to be in danger from the Baxters. They're always going to exert their will emotionally or physically to separate them and control them. For us, that made that, that scene a little cathartic anyway, this idea that maybe at least a baby can get out even if she can't. But it was it was a nice bright line from that scene in the suite to, to the montage. Yeah, I think our executive producer, Liz Glosser, conceived of that scene because she kept calling it the Rosemary's Baby scene. But it was not in the original outline. And she said very wisely that we need to really hammer home the point that Fia's baby cannot escape this family. And you also have Michael Stolberg doing a great... Uh, Calm down, calm down, oh which God. he did when with he Gina early on. Oh he started, God. when he did that, he was like, that's just what Jimmy does. He just grabs women Gina in. Gina was doing it too. She was also like, calm down. And I was like, what is happening? They're all doing the calm down chant. Oh like, <laughs> I did not think about that scene. You <laughs> <laughs> see me with my cat. When my cat gets uh, going, I, I hold oh her. And goes, calm down, calm down. <laughs> It's so Look, weird. I, I know that the the sexual relationships with the Baxters are quite interesting. I know. Oh my god. Okay. Well, so let's, I'm let's here just, for it, Joey. Let's I, not let's get like, twisted. I'm all about the weird sexual uh, <laughs> chemistry between these two. You're a mess. Okay. One question. I'm just gonna throw this out. This is random and off of our script here. But is Carlo Gina's kiddo from another marriage, or is he actually Jimmy's? No, he's Jimmy's. For real. Because it just yeah. doesn't feel that way, man. I swear. Every time I'm like, I'm like, he just seems like he was like kiddo that came along with Gina. And then and like Jimmy and him just like never really clicked 100 percent. Like there was always so much more friction there. Man, I was certain. Well, I definitely always thought that Carlo really felt like his mother's son and he felt like his mm-hmm. grandfather's son. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I do like I, I take your point. I, I do feel like Jimmy never really saw himself in Carlo and and that feels true but yeah no he was always meant to be his biological son but that's part of that beauty of that dynamic though right I think Jimmy always saw himself in Fia and from the little we saw of Rocco in Rocco these good characters these pure characters it's the conversation with Carmine and Jimmy you know like I'm not a thief you know that whole conversation (laughs) like Jimmy didn't see himself that way he saw himself as this pure dove and it was Gina and Carlo were the bloodthirsty ones the the Contis Yeah. you know right yeah. right total conties real conti real conti vibes coming from them i don't think we meant the their last names to both sound me like neither a, until i just said words, it i didn't realize how nasty that sounded it, until it, i said it that wasn't intentional and baxter wasn't intentional but every time in the early on the days of the second season we keep calling it the baxter baby and you just hear bastard baby and we're like, <laughs> we didn't mean that but that's how it sounds when you say it quickly 
so at the end of the series, Big Mo and Desire are on top. Gina's on top. Carl has taken off his tie. He he no longer answers to anyone, which is terrifying for everyone. Uh, <laughs> a, Olivia, off. who was pretty inept the entire series and just kind of stepped in shit and came out smelling like gold, <laughs> is standing in front <laughs> of Carmine. But it's true. But I mean, the, the, that oh she God. she's sitting there You're betting on horses. Real, she, she's You're betting. She's betting on the ponies when all the action's going down. So true. so I, I think it's a bold way to end the series with so little justice being served for so many of these bad people or quote unquote bad people yeah why was that the right choice for this series was it always going to be that way yeah it's funny because i saw a lot of people online talking about like okay there's one episode left how are they going to wrap up all this stuff and it didn't feel like we had that much to do and i think i hope it was because we properly focused on the most important things which were michael and eugene i think you got like about as much optimism as you're going to get from this show which is michael you know getting some sense of his life back and eugene getting the the best outcome he could hope for given the circumstances but i mean every, all all the criminals are not going to be in prison and all the crime in new orleans is not going to go away and, th and that would not feel in line with our show so i think some people had to emerge on top and what we tried to do was sort of stay in line with the one of the themes of the show which was like i said before i think that you can't you can't have it all, so you have to be willing to make sacrifices, and Gina is willing to sacrifice a lot of what matters to her in order to get her power. And Big Mo, uh, kind of more poignantly, was willing to sacrifice something that mattered a great deal to her in order to have her power. So, you know, in some way, they have earned their, their positions, um, even if they're somewhat sinister. So speaking of Olivia in that last question, walk us through a little bit about the casting of Rosie Perez. We loved her. We thought she was great, but she had a lot of off-screen stuff going on. Thank goodness we had Mike for all of the Michael impressions of Rosie. Michael, you gotta call me Michael. Uh, yeah, and it was so funny to me, the idea that like, that's that's actually Mike's name. So how funny every time he, she does that, you must get like a bristle It was, your it was like, literally like walking through my high school. Every time Rosie Perez yeah. was on screen, it was like walking through my high school. She yeah, was yeah. amazing. So what what was with the choice? I don't know if it was scheduling or anything, but what was the choice of having her play a more off-screen role where she could do this by by coming in through text? We joked that she spent she must have been in the bushes waiting to come right. in the back door all the time. <laughs> um, we figured she was always waiting out there. Um but um, but yeah. she's such a wonderful actress and actually seeing Seeing Nancy, Olivia, and Lee standing there at the end when Eugene was coming out, there was a real, I don't know, empowering women kind of feel in that moment for yeah. me. And I don't know if that was on yeah. purpose or not. That was a lot of questions I just asked you. That was so many questions. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, it was funny when, when we cast her. Um, I feel like casting is usually you don't want to get your heart set on one person because you just never get them. Um, but Liz Glosser had asked me, like, who do you see for this character of Olivia? And I said, Rosie Perez. And I thought, there's just no way, but I'm going to throw it out there. And then the problem is, I mean, obviously every actor is different, but there are certain types and you can usually say, well, if we don't get that person, this person can kind of do the same thing. And for Rosie, there was like nobody else who could do who fills that box in any way. Um, she's unique and her sense of humor is is so important to what she does. And then she's got that weight and gravitas. I think we're very, very lucky to have her because, I mean, I take your point that she may not have been the most effective prosecutor, uh, but you also had to believe, you, you didn't want to just like roll your eyes at this character. You wanted someone who you wanted to see back again. And also she has a tough job in that she is sort of a foil to the main character. And that whoever plays that role can often 
kind of irritate an audience. I mean, Adam, I think, was a perfectly understandable and relatable 17-year-old, but you know, there was a lot of frustration with him because he was getting in the way of our main character, and that can be frustrating to see. So I think Rosie thread that needle really well. Okay, what was the third part of that question? <laughs> it was about the it was really about the women, about Lee and Nancy okay. and Olivia, but even Senator yeah. Grandma. I mean, you had all yeah. these women along the way who really I feel like as much as we were looking at Jimmy and Michael a lot, and a lot of people do, by the end, I was really looking at all the women. I, that was definitely something that evolved, and we realized pretty early on that there was going to be that component to the story. Liz Glotzer, again, had said, she was like, I just, how, like, early on, she said, I see this as Gina versus Big Mo at the end of the season. That's just how, that's the, that's the showdown that feels like it's coming. The idea to put Rosie and and Amy Landecker's character together in scenes made a lot of sense, and they had kind of a fractured relationship at first and then they got to bond a little bit more and and yeah like, i mean i watch every episode with my wife and and she turned to me and said did you write that line about in the history of men getting away with shit has always emboldened them to do it again and i said yeah which was nice that she liked it because i've never been accused of being a particularly masculine writer but i i am drawn to like the female characters in this show a lot and and I think that given sort of the sins of some of the male characters in the first season, their time was up. Yeah. Well, as a woman, I want to thank you so much for writing characters, women characters specifically, that feel very full and well-rounded. And I I didn't have any of those cringy kind of moments with any of them where I really felt like, gosh, I don't know any woman who would say that. Like, no, you captured their voices. I really, I have a lot of strong women in my life. And I was like, yeah, these, these are what my, my women around me would say. So yeah. you got it. You totally captured them. We have a lot of strong women on this show, and, and so the voices of Liz and Michelle King, and, and then our last four episodes were directed by Carrie Preston and Rosemary Rodriguez, and so they had a, a huge hand in, in making some of these decisions and taking care of these characters, and, and then the actors, too. So there's there's so many people, from the writers to everybody else, who really take ownership of these, of these characters to make sure that we don't do anything wrong, I hope. <laughs> Here's a well, let's enter the quick fire question round. Uh, less okay. less deep <laughs> philosophy questions. Okay. Did it surprise you? Uh, you're on social media. You're reading about the show. Did it surprise you how likable and how much of a fan favorite Jimmy became over the course of the show? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I guess what's not surprising is that Michael Stuhlbarg is such a tremendous actor that obviously people are engaged by his performance. Um, what does surprise me, it is interesting to see who audience members will forgive and and who right. they'll relate to and who they won't. And and yeah, I mean, I think we're not trying to make Gina the most subtle of characters, but everyone really holds her accountable for all the bad things that she has had any hand in. But he's had a hand in, uh, in all those same things, and he's often the one who's given the order. And But the fact that he's conflicted seems to go a really long way with people. I think in real life that can be true too, but but it, it can frustrate me. It, sometimes you want to say, well, if, if you, you're the person that knows better, aren't you even worse for having done it than the person who doesn't know any better? I think it probably speaks to the performance more than anything that, that people seem to love Jimmy. Bird fans yeah. bird fans don't love Jimmy. Fans, oh, no. fans of little no. parakeets and Scottish and Scottish actors don't love uh, don't love oh, Jimmy too gosh. much. Well, we're going to scooch true. on over to that Scottish actor right now. Okay. So we want to know, did Frankie and Gina have an affair? So there, you pose some really interesting questions, and 
I have my own opinions, but I think there is something to. Like, I don't want to give an answer that's just in my head because that doesn't make it. Maybe, we maybe. Can qualify it as your own personal head cannon. Again, we we want to hear that. I mean, I think it was certainly possible. I think for sure. Gina planted that seed in 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 Jimmy's head, and and I don't think Jimmy ever forgot about that comment. So yeah, agreed, agreed. <laughs> there's a there's a Dean Cook joke where he's like, sometimes you know, a woman will say something, drop it like a little seed in yeah. your head, and then walk away, and like a week later, it explodes yeah. in your head. And I was like, that yeah. was one of those moments. And his joke is like, he's like, you're just like your father, and then you just walk. Like, My out. father was a great man. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I was like, uh-huh. it felt like exactly yeah. that moment. I was dying. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. Okay, so then I know then the the follow up on that is is did Frankie make it through that medical supply tray slappage? Yeah, I thought so. I I wasn't I don't think the idea was to convey that he had died. It seemed like that would be actually a much bigger problem for Jimmy leaving a dead body behind just in public. Right. I mean, that's something Jimmy would have had or uh, Frankie would have cleaned up. Yeah. Yeah. So right. I, I, no, I think he crawled away. <laughs> Furloughed has never had such meaning before. <laughs> yes. Yes. Like talking good. about uh, ending an employment. Yes. In in getting ready for this interview and, and reading about you a little bit, I saw that at one point in your life you had some lawyer aspirations. Uh, I know you worked on The Good Fight with the Kings uh, before, but I'm curious if this show scratched that itch for you at all. I, I'm, I'm thinking of Lee's opening uh, opening statement from Eugene's trial and talking about not trusting anyone and how, how that building has betrayed her and don't trust lawyers, don't trust anyone. Did it color your view of being a lawyer and the justice system at all working on the show? I think... What I want to do is write lawyers on television and in film. So I think I get to do what I want to do. I'm, Lee's opening, both the opening statements in 209 were written by Marcus Dalzine, who was our one writer who was a lawyer. If they seemed like they were fairly accurate and, and, and keeping in line with the legal profession, it's because that was his job before he became a screenwriter. But yeah, it's it's something I wanted to do. But I don't know. I talk to lawyers like yourself, and usually they tell me I made the right decision to not go to law school. A hundred thousand percent. <laughs> My son said a couple months ago that he wanted to be a lawyer, and I whipped my head around. I said, oh, no, you do not. (laughs) You will follow the arts, young man, goddammit. Follow the arts. Oh, my God. You, like, push him on on stage. Like, no. (laughs) Now, go sing for me. All right. We had a couple more for you. So... Yeah. Michael and Charlie, that friendship was so important to us, and we really love Charlie. And now we have this fracture that we don't think they can overcome, but do you think it's possible in the future that they could find their way back? Yeah, I don't think they can overcome it either. That was also a Brian thing that he wanted. He said he wanted the dissolution of a friendship, and he wanted it in two parts. And I thought that was super interesting because it's easier to conceive of sort of the big blow up fight where both parties are kind of like, fuck you, we're done. And so we had to do that work of thinking of, well, why does each one in different moments say they're done with this friendship? And and for Charlie, the it was a bit easier because we knew what Michael had gotten Charlie into and that he had not only not told him about what the car was in season one, but he wasn't telling him any of these secrets in season two. So he was kind of jeopardizing his friend without intending to do so. Um, And then we were looking for, okay, so what could Charlie have done to make Michael say, this is it. And obviously we tied in the Robin storyline there. And and I think by that moment, they were just 
I mean, I like that it's not a big blow up. I think you see the sadness and it's like, well, this is something that mattered a great deal to both of us. But this friendship has run its course now. Did Charlie truly never put together that by putting Robin in touch with Rudy signed her death warrant? Is, you know, because that almost seems like willful ignorance to to never have made that connection for him. Yeah, I agree. The only time I ever spoke with Isaiah about a line that was written was that line. And he, he called me because I wasn't on set that day. And he just he wanted that. He, that was basically his question. And I said, I think that like we're trying to be in the gray area a little bit, but I, mm. I think that at best there was so much willful ignorance there. But yeah, I agree. I mean, he's a smart enough person. He knows the phone call he made. I don't think he made the phone call with any malicious intent to Rudy to say, Hey, I think he was really trying to say, this is a cop that I know he could talk to my reporter friend and maybe help her out. And then she dies. And I think, I'm sure he did the math very quickly. And then he also did the math and thought, there's nothing I can do to bring her back. There's nothing I can really do to make the situation better. I'm going to bury this as deeply in my soul as possible. I just think back on all the actors on this show and, and how just as far as an ensemble goes, it, it's really just heavy hitters. I feel yeah. so often that Isaiah Whitlock is kind of like that still uh, Michael Stolberg scenario where this is a really unscrupulous character, as it turns out, loyal for sure, yeah. but corrupt also but you yeah. just like him and you want to forgive yeah. him his sins and i, and I think that's yeah. so much about isaiah's performance yeah i think so too. you cast a bunch of people who have amazing smiles which sounds really kind of silly to say <laughs> yeah. but it's true like when you think about like at first like jimmy's smile can be extremely creepy and menacing but by the yeah. end because he was showing so much more like vulnerability and he was being the the softer side versus genocide it started to become attractive which is like what is happening to yeah. me <laughs> like oh no his smile yeah. like totally changed and same with charlie his big grin at the beginning was so heartwarming but by the end felt much more like what's behind that big smile i i don't know yeah in reality they're all really nice people so i think that helps but yeah they they know how to bring especially when it comes to doing the evil stuff there's just so many actors on the show who who play it in the non-obvious way and stuhlbarg is obviously a great example where you think he's mad and then he smiles at you and that's even more menacing at times <laughs> Yeah. There's, yeah, there's great face acting in the show. And I, I, we talk yeah. about Michael all the time, how, you know, there's 97,000 muscles in his face and he twitches <laughs> each one individually before he yeah. says something. The corners of his mouth, man. <laughs> I, they, I, they, they're a whole scene all by themselves. I, I would bec I, because I would watch these episodes so often. I would sit there and time how oh long gosh. he would just face act before he responded to something. And you'd yeah. get like 10, 12 seconds of him just twitching an eyebrow or, or a cheek <laughs> oh. muscle before he said yeah. that. And I felt all of it. it you know, oh you, you, it hits you. It gets right in your soul. That's yeah, funny. there was a, there was a, so, you know, sometimes you have to ADR dialogue because it just didn't come out cleanly or whatever on, on the day. And so you go into a studio and you have them say the line again. And there was one line that we hate to do it, but we had to do it a couple of times. But there was one line where we had Michael do it and, and everyone thought he had spoken like 10 seconds earlier. And we kept trying to figure out what he had said. And then we realized, no, he's just moving his mouth in an interesting way because he's processing a thought. But he actually didn't say anything. And then we're like, is it going to look like a mistake like he was talking? But yeah, his face does a lot of incredible work. <laughs> That's funny. Are there any questions that you've gotten through Twitter or Facebook or, or just generally from maybe your family? I don't even know who's questioning you these days. But is there anything that you want to make sure that you've answered that you've seen people really question, especially set anything straight where people are like, wow, they really got that wrong and they went down the wrong path like please set it straight 
No, I mean, I also don't think that you really get that right. If, you know, if, if something is so confusing that a lot of people have the same question, then you just messed up and you don't get to like <laughs> respond on Twitter and say, well, here's the thing. I mean, I, I think you guys have really hit home the idea that that things happen off screen. I mean, I think a great example, and, and you talked about it, was Big Mo and Little Mo's conversation in the bar, their big showdown. Mm. Obviously, there's more to that conversation because in what happens off screen is the entire concocted plan to take Desire back from Chris. Um, and you can't see it because you need the the surprise reveal when Roderick is there and Chris gets taken down. Yeah, I th- so I think it's fun for people to also envision, like, what was that conversation and to try to fill in the gaps and 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 if you know i think you can have different interpretations but if if people are really unable to make to bridge that gap then i think that's our mistake and we just have to live with the criticism I have to say that as podcasters, we appreciate writing like this because not only, of course, it's fantastic and the lines are so jarring and sometimes and and they really hit you on other times, but also you left room for us to interpret this for ourselves, which is really nice. Sometimes when it's, you know, it's spelled out so clearly, it's like, well, so that's what happened this week and there's nothing for us to really talk about. You know, we at least have some room there to, to talk. It's true. I've definitely written things where... All the answers are provided. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily make for the most compelling entertainment. And, and yeah, it is nice to hear the conversations. And this show is built on on the central premise of put yourself in, the, in these characters' situations and think about it for a while. For our listeners that always ask us, do you have any behind-the-scenes stories that you could share from the series? Anything, especially if this, if this truly was the end, do you have any favorite memories or anything like that that you'd like to share with our listeners? There's so many memories. There, there really, it really was so much fun being on set with with all of these people. I really loved courtroom scenes, and and I loved watching the end of this show come together. Watching Brian do the testimony at the end. Uh, I was there that day, and he only did a couple of takes, and then uh, he and I had to discuss something else that had nothing to do with like real creative stuff. And so he called me over, and I said, hey, "I just want you to know that was." absolutely incredible and he was like oh thanks but it it was you know usually you're kind of like your your sort of head is in the the production of it all and um it's nice when it just kind of takes you out of that for a second you just are like captivated by someone's performance or, or or what's what's happening so how was it shooting in in louisiana in new orleans this is one of those shows that really <laughs> takes on the flavor of of the location so I've done two movies and neither took place in New Orleans, but both shot there. And then this show. So I've spent a considerable amount of time shooting in New Orleans. And it's it's a fantastic city that, that I really love. And it's cliche, but it's really a character in the show. And so I think it's important that we get to spend a lot of time there. And and yeah, there's just there's just a vibe, I think, when everyone is in New Orleans. Um, some of this season was shot in L.A., but it, I think it's really good that everyone gets to see the city. Being in Houston, I feel like I've, every time we have quite a few members in the Facebook group that we run and they um, there, there's been like a I'm scared of New Orleans. Is it this corrupt? Is everyone so bad? Blah, blah, blah. And, I, and I always feel compelled to come on and be like, listen, the Cajun Navy is over in Houston. Every time we have a hurricane, like we help, we all help yeah. each other out. They're good people. We're good people. Like, like this is yeah. a show. <laughs> and yeah. yes, of course, there's corrupt people. But please don't not go to New Orleans because no. of your honor. <laughs> like, please. No. Like, it's a it's, wonderful city. It really is, and, and there's I, I, I've never I had never actually been there until the first time I was there for production in like 2015, and I was just 
taken by that city. It, it, there, it, there, there is a vibe and a character to it that you notice the moment you get there. And there's it's such interesting people and then such an interesting history to that to that city. Very much so. I, I loved uh, We took the kiddos to the Children's Museum, and my most favorite thing was that they had, like, all the plastic crawdads, corn on the cob, so you can make, like, jambalaya and gumbo and stuff, like, as, as like, mm. a little kid with your little plastic crawdads. I was That's like, this so is cool. so cute. <laughs> like, New yeah. Orleans, you just, they, like, get it and, like, embrace their culture. I love it so much. I desperately want to go to Desi Boulay and listen to Janelle <laughs> sing. Like, uh, that club was hopping on opening night. I, that's, right? where, that's where I'm going to go spend my money down in a quarter. Well, I want Let's ask Joey, which party is he attending? Would you rather be over at the club or would you rather be at like Jimmy's birthday? Oh, I'd much rather be at the Desi Boulay. Love it. <laughs> um, no, I, uh, I wasn't actually there though that day that they filmed that. I was at the uh, Jimmy's birthday party, but um, yeah, so that club, I mean, Jeff Moso is our production designer. So that club is a real place but the interior was all on a stage in la but it looks amazing and yeah i, I thought that party was uh pretty fun great casting for with the uh, ciara renee too in that role obviously we did a direct pickup at the beginning of season two but then we skip ahead a year and so it's another case where you have to like bridge a lot of gaps so right. you had to sort of immediately believe that big mo was in love with this woman without having seen any of their relationship and and i feel like they just had this chemistry that you know if they didn't have it that that storyline wouldn't have worked the guest stars on the show were great though i mean i i you know damon gupta playing uh ada yeah. the ada he's he's yeah. great I mean, he brings gravitas yes. just in a couple of lines and it's a guy you don't even want to root for because you want to root for eugene yeah. and you listen to him talk though and you're like yeah he's making a good point yeah he had to make those good points without you just writing him off as an evil person and so he brought i think a certain humanity to the prosecution that that made you then think oh eugene is going to prison for the rest of his life because this guy makes some sense right i have to say on, on the guests our side the senator grandma margot martindale seeing her over in cocaine bear right at the time when the finale <laughs> was coming out i was like this is crazy like her, she's like over here playing this crazy crazy park ranger and then i have her as senator grandma and i'm like i can hardly connect these two at all I know. it's exploding my brain but she was hilarious in Cocaine Bear. If you all need a little more Margot in your life. Yeah, she can do it all. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like we have to also give a, a, a guess, like a award to uh, Mike Seal as Roderick, who I still think is one of the most terrifying people I've ever seen on television. <laughs> I mean, he's charismatic. Like... <laughs> you know, I love what he says, you know, long live the queen at the end in his final line. But he's really so intimidating cool. guy. Very, but cool. Yeah, that was a really fun character to write. Um, when I, I first met Mike over Zoom, um, he did his read was so great. His primary career is he's a stuntman, and he that's what his interest is. It, it almost is as if he doesn't want to act. He just wants to do stunts, but he's so good at acting that like people force these roles upon him but he's just he was like fixing his motorcycle and then he asked me he, he was telling me all about this his life and i was like yeah i am so risk averse that you and i have do nothing the same i don't jump out of airplanes i don't ride motorcycles i don't do any of that and he was like you know what you need to get hit in the face to really feel like you're alive and then he looked at me and he's like I could do that for you. And I was like, no, you know what? And in, in the nicest way, like it was, it was so non-threatening. It was so like, I right. think this would be a spiritual experience that would help you. And I thought I'm good. <laughs> but you know, you. It's funny that you say that because I have been at multiple get togethers where that question has come up and where you, where I'll like walk around and be like, have you ever been in a fist fight? Like, have you ever been yeah. punched in the face? Cause that seems crazy to me. I don't know what I would do. I would fold like a little yeah. paper tiger on the floor. Like no way. I can't imagine. <laughs> 
I like that you yeah. guys took that and translated it into him being a travel ball coach. Oh my god, that was so cute. Yeah, you know, like yeah, that that is yeah. some dangerous, you know, shit. You don't want to you want to travel around. Those are late nights and kids get competitive. Right. You know, so you know his whole demeanor is just implied threat. But it's like if this guy's willing to have these conversations in front of a little league team, <laughs> nothing yeah. scares he him. He does not care. He's no, unflappable, man. Yeah. I do have a new answer for what's my favorite moment on set. Now that it occurs All right, to me, let's go. <laughs> Okay. Well, my favorite moment is the scene where uh, the priest hands the baby over to the happy couple because that happy couple is me and my wife, Abby. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. We didn't know. Oh, didn't know. That's amazing. Well, congratulations on your fake baby adoption. Did you keep the baby? <laughs> was that the rap? Was that was that the rap gift for the show? <laughs> So that, that, that actually was a fake baby. It was a oh, fake baby. Fake um, baby. Because, okay. yeah, we did not have the twins, Jesse and Dylan. They they had already wrapped for the day. So we got the fake baby, which we found out was a $25,000 doll. So my wife was Whoa. very careful while handling it. So maybe you should have kept the fake baby. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a retirement fund baby. We have the 401k and don't forget about the fake baby. Don't forget about that in the portfolio. <laughs> Yeah. Fake baby That's Rocco funny. is going to pay for the car, our next car payment. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, when all is said and done, and, and if we don't get a new season and then this is it, what do you hope viewers take away from your honor? I hope that the the ending was fulfilling. It was really important to us when we came in to the second season to do justice by Eugene and to try to answer some of the karmic questions that have been set up in season one. So I hope even if you're not happy with all the decisions the characters made, that you feel like there's a sense of completion and that and resolution. All right, Joe, we're going to ask you a real like tough one now. What are you okay. watching on TV? Especially now that this, your honor's over. I'm sure that's all you, that was running on your TV 24 seven up until now, but now, right. now that it's over, what are you watching? What do you enjoy? No, it's true. I, you can't watch drama, I don't think, when you're writing a drama. So I was only watching things like The Office. Let's see, Yellow Jackets is coming back soon. I think Ted Lasso just started again. The Last of Us. Uh, I'm trying to catch up on a lot of shows, but those are top of my list. Yellow Jackets is pretty insane. Uh, we, we have <laughs> yeah. screeners on it. Mike, bought... did you want to do your haiku? No, I've already done it, I think, like three <laughs> times on different things. Mike made a haiku about Yellow Jackets, Joey. How crazy is that? Wow. His little creative Let's mind is just buzzing <laughs> oh, out no, over no, there. No, no, no. All right, all right, all right. All right. No poetry for your honor, though. <laughs> oh, damn. Listen, for the finale, now Gauntlet's Throne. You must have a haiku for the finale <laughs> podcast. Okay. What's next for you? I mean, we're Love your work. You're doing an amazing job. And we definitely, when we find a showrunner that we love, we will hang on to every show they do. So please, what could we be watching for next? I published a book last year called The Local. It is currently in the hands of Liz Glotzer and Robert Michelle King and CBS. So I'll be writing a pilot for that. And with any luck, uh, that will be on television one day. Awesome. Can you give us just a little bit of a sneak peek, like what, what would be the general premise? Yeah, there's a small town in East Texas called Marshall, where about 20 years ago it became, yeah, it became <laughs> kind of like the, the hub of patent laws, uh, patent litigation in this country. And so it's about a, uh, a patent lawyer who ends up having to take on his first murder case when a client of his from out of town um, kills a local hero. Wow. Well, that sounds amazing. 
you do like you do like writing your lawyers. I like that. <laughs> I do. It was uh, yeah. It was it was supposed to be the big highlight of my year was this book coming out, and then I ended up being showrunner and hardly had time to uh, to enjoy that experience. <laughs> but I'm excited to return to it. Well, that's, well, that's awesome. Like, where can people get the book? I assume Amazon anywhere. Tell us. Yeah, anywhere uh, I think where books are sold, you should be able to find it. We're gonna have to have you back when uh, when that right. pilot gets picked up. We'll have you. I'll be right here. So here's my Yellow Jacket season two haiku <laughs> yes. review. <clears throat> Mysteries deepen. The pacing is very slow. Don't watch while eating. That is, <laughs> that's good. That is my five seven five. <laughs> so that's, I like it. <laughs> Dude, now I feel like I have to ask one more crazy question because I'm like, it's just like my my brain's like swirling. Okay, so Mike, totally. Remember Fia and Father Jay? Remember how you were all like sassed out about them? So were we supposed to read into that at all? Was there like some sort of energy? I clarified that. I mean, I want Joey to answer, but I'm not saying you're a weirdo. But I'm asking Joey. Joey can explain. Look, what what Mike's perverted mind sees on screen is not no no. I I told it was it was an intentional misdirect for sure. That was one of the reasons that we wanted the priest to be younger um, because nice. we knew the whole way going in that that the priest was going to be the person that helped Fia get rid of the child or put the baby up for adoption. And so we thought, you know, to hide the ball on that, people will probably see flirtation and you know two young actors who really had good chemistry anyway and then you know if you saw fleabag we're all primed for sort of the the love affair with the priests so it was it was (laughs) yeah it was was, we wanted people to think that's where it was going so they'd be surprised and young priests are flirty they are by their nature they have a flirty (laughs) energy about them that was that was where i got to so i believe that they didn't actually do anything but it's it's the vibe of a young priest that that's just how they tend to be they're movers and shakers right they're the danny zuko's of the clergy really they're out there proselytizing (laughs) and recruiting you know they're you know exactly (laughs) it's their jobs to get us back in the church so let's give them that like, like Whoopi Goldberg told us, you know, you got to get butts in seats uh, in Sister Act. So. <laughs> Joey, thank you so much for your time, helping us reach our closure, helping the listeners come to some closure with the show. Hopefully we get that season three. Hopefully, you know, the Showtime gives you the call and says it's going to go on. The Kings, will, you know, want to go for it. If people want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? At JC Hearthstone at, uh, on Twitter and Instagram. And active there. I mean, you did a great job of posting pictures of the covers of all the uh, scripts all season long. It was always fun to take a look at those. So. Yeah. yeah, it was. You're like, yes, Sorry. it was. <laughs> yes, yes. I also, I also enjoyed doing it. Yes, yes, yes. Go check out. I'm, ter- well, I'm truly not that great on uh, <laughs> on social media. So I finally had something to post for a, a few weeks. So that was fun. That's awesome. Is there anything that you would like to say to the listeners and all the people who have been watching and supporting the show for the last two seasons? It was it's a small show, but it was it's a fervent following. It really does feel like an honor to, to see people follow a show like this. And I want to thank both of you because it, it's an incredible experience to get to listen to informed debate and arguments and, and insight about the show after it's been made. And, and it's really rewarding to hear that people care about it enough to have conversations about it. 
Uh, it was our pleasure. I mean, it definitely entertained us for 20 hours. And uh, I, I think... It, and then some. And then some. I, <laughs> I mean, we, we talk, we regularly talk two to three hours on an on hour of television. I think that should hopefully say everything <laughs> you should hopefully take away from it and how we felt about the show. We Dude, really I was picking it. apart everything. I was like, that dress that Fia was wearing in one of the last scenes, is this such mm. a similar dress that Laura like Gilmore wears? And I was like, is this some sort of <laughs> nod to being a single mother? I was like, like uh. I was like picking it apart. Like you've no idea how much I was just just investigating. It was too much, right? It's, it's so fun. It's like sometimes people see things and you're like, man, there's no way that was it. But then there was one. I'm going to send you a side-by-side picture of that dress that she's wearing. You're going to say, oh my God. I believe you. I'll ask Olivia Miles, who's our costume designer, if that was what was in her mind. But no, there was one thing though. Michael in the first episode has to have a prison number. And so his number is, uh, what is this, like 2326, I think. They asked me to come up with a number. So that's what I did because I looked at like a phone keypad. And that's how you spell Adam. And one, one person on Twitter actually found that. And she was like, oh, yeah. So that's kind of a cool little Easter egg. And then Liz Glotzer was like, can you believe people on Twitter? They're so crazy to think that that's what happened. And I was like, Liz, that is what I did. I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> That's amazing, man. That's some creativity. I love it. Love little hidden little things like that. People will eat that up, Mike. Yeah, you know it. You know I I, I have in my notes that prison number. I just didn't do anything with it. Open right now. He's trying to make (laughs) different haikus with it. I I don't think I. Yeah, I'm not going to be a cryptographer or anything in in my future. But listen, never say never. You don't know, Joey. We can't know what's going to happen. If your honor taught us anything, life changes in an instant, okay? You could be a cryptographer Mm -hmm. tomorrow. Some future lawyer you you write about might be a cryptographer, though, and that might be the thing. All right, right, Joey, we've kept kept you for nine days here. I feel like we have uh, locked you into the studio to record with us. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, we can't wait to have you back for whatever comes next for you. Thanks for having me. I'll come back anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.